So how do you how do you fix that problem? Uh, well, so uh, you know, you bring in subplots that are funny. That's one way of doing it. But what what Santa Clarita Diet has done is it's just funny all the time. <laughs> Sorry, it it tickled me that that might be the great takeaway for today's lesson. Well, it's like, just funny. How do you do long form comedy? Make it funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of true. Tune in next week. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El-Wakil, co-author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylog team. So today we're going to talk about Santa Clarita Diet again, the second season. We are. And, oh, am I getting theme music for my admin this week? Only if you ask for it. I would like some and music. And suggest what the music is. No, dealer's choice. No, then it'll be silence. <laughs> that's that's always dealer's choice. Um, okay. Uh, as always, get in touch. A load of you been uh, emailing in, so keep that coming um, through the website, thestorytoolkit.wordpress.com. Uh, you can also follow us on that blog, so you you get an email every time we post a new episode. Um, and get in touch on Twitter at the Story Toolkit, mm-hmm. um, and you can obviously. Uh, Sign up on iTunes and whatnot um, to get. I really thought whatnot was a thing. Whatnot was. Yeah, you call WhatsApp. It's like whatnot. For a second, I thought that was a real uh, thing. You are hip. You are cool. Um, Let's get into it. Uh, Yeah. So Santa Clarita Diet. So episode sixty-one was uh, of our show, not of Santa Clarita. Yeah, this only had twenty. Uh, our episode 61 was about the first season of Santa Clarita Diet. And we talked a lot about how it gets away with being very funny despite being very violent and gory. Because typically comedy, mean the rule of comedy is nobody gets hurt. But as we talked a lot in the other one, there's a scene where a guy is talking to a dead man who has been half eaten in his bathtub and it's just he's talking to the corpse as if like you know i'm sorry that this had to happen and all that stuff and it's just it's really funny <laughs> and season two has even more gore and is is a very dark gallows humor show um it's also but it's very funny it's also not something we planned on talking about again no no i we just watched it because my mum was a uh, she was laughing constantly as she was watching it. And then she like told me, you have to watch the second series with me. You have to watch it. I'm like, okay, fine. So I watched the second series with her and it was just hilarious. I couldn't stop laughing. I really couldn't. And there's a very good chance we're going to swear a lot in this episode because a lot of the quotes will involve swearing. It's <laughs> just funny. Um, oh, dear. And big spoiler alert. If you haven't seen season two yet. Or season one. Or season one. Jeez. Uh, go... And watch them. Yeah, seriously. Santa Clarita to die in the first uh, episode we did on it. Um, we did explain very much that we didn't want to spoil the premise of the show because I didn't even when I went to watch it, I didn't know what the premise of the show was. I had no idea what this thing was about, and so it was like much like the Good Place. It yeah. was great to suddenly watch this. I I have no idea what this was about, and you just you're off in this wonderful ride, right? Um, so. Okay, that was just spoiler warning because we're going to start talking about Santa Clarita Diet now. It's about zombies, right? So, <laughs> Santa Clarita Diet, for uh, if you remember, is a show where it opens and Drew Barrymore and uh, Timothy Oliphant are realtors. Realtors, realtors. Re- re- <laughs> That's a running joke at this season about that, um, and. Um, they're, they're realtors and they're showing off a house and Drew Barrymore just inexplicably vomits everywhere. And then she has this enormous vomiting attack. She throws up this weird little red ball of, like, organ that you don't know what it is. She just throws that up uh, and then she dies. <laughs> and uh, she comes back to life and now is a zombie. And it just, it's, 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 <laughs> it does the premise of the show. And basically, she and Timothy Oliphant are trying to hide the fact that she's a zombie and that she is killing and eating people. Um, and they're trying to just kind of 
live a nice suburban life in, in Santa Clarita and get away with it. But of course, it just spirals very quickly out of control. They murder uh, the next door neighbor who's a policeman. <laughs> they just murder a lot of people. It's very funny. And um, season uh, two opens with them hoping that they may have found um, a cure to to being undead. The cure being that they apparently they need this um, the vomit of a Serbian. They need the bile of a Ser- of a Serbian, right? So they managed to online they they you know they put like a Craigslist thing of like, uh, are you Serbian? If so, we'll pay you one hundred and fifty dollars to throw up in a bucket for us and let us keep the vomit. So of course the guy who answers this ad is a total creep, and uh, he creeps out um, Drew Barrymore's daughter enough that Drew Barrymore jumps in. And- eats him alive and and just like just just spatters his body all over the kitchen uh but they get the vial and she takes the serum that they make up and all it does is it stops her from deteriorating it doesn't cure her it just fixes her zombiness at the state that she's in because what's happening is she's falling apart like her bits of her are falling off she's becoming more and more feral so this halts uh the progression so she's okay. She'll be okay. And um, so it doesn't cure her, but it, it halts the progression. And what happens is um, there's another woman we've seen in the background, this um, clerk who works at the drugstore. And she's shown up in a couple of episodes in the background. And she's just been funny in how deadpan she is, called Ramona. And uh, she seduces the, the kid in the show, Eric. And she turns out to be a zombie as well. And what she wants is she wants the serum so she doesn't get any worse. Uh, and they they help her with the serum so she doesn't get any worse. And then she decides to keep Eric to help her murder people and get away with it. Just as Joel does for um, Drew Barrymore's character, Sheila. And uh, anyway, so they manage to get him away from that. Ramona leaves. And then they realize that Ramona and uh, Sheila must have some sort of link. What's the link between them? How come they both got sick around the same time and became zombies around the same time and what they discover is that they both had a special at Chipopo's which was the clam chowder special so um they go they go to Chipopo's they manage and the guy running Chipopo's by the way is the teacher from Everybody Hates Chris I love that guy um they go to Chipopo's he's also in The Wire isn't he Oh, yeah, he's the... Yeah, he's, the, yeah, he's he, in uh, season two of The Wire. He's the Greeks guy, yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> that's, of course, the big thing he's for, right? But uh, anyway, so they go to Chipopo's. They manage to find out who ga- who distributed the clams. It turns out to be someone very local because the sea, uh, food distributor they normally have uh, couldn't get them clams that day. So for the clam special, they found out who's distributed it, and they found out only three people ordered it. Uh, and those three people being Sheila, Ramona, and then this third person who's a, a military colonel living alone, old guy. And so they, so Joel, Timothy the Olyphant's character, goes to see him. And it's this, by the way, it's a beautiful scene uh, of just him trying to work out if he or isn't, if he is or isn't a zombie and try to test him for it. And the show keeps like obviously playing up he's a zombie and then... Rever- like reversing make him look very normal then it's a clear zombie no he's normal clear zombie and you're like and after after like I don't know a half a dozen of these fake couch like I genuinely don't know <laughs> and then he starts eating a Danish and you go okay he's fine because the undead can't eat uh, regular food and he's eating the Danish and he's without throwing up and you're like oh he's normal that's fine and then go to shake hands and that's where the guy's skin comes off it's just yeah, he's he's completely feral. He's lost it, and which results oddly, in um, oddly, despite various throats, but numerous <laughs> throats being ripped out this season. That's the grossest moment in the season, where his, the really... skin of his hand just slips off. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, every every scene, Timothy Oliphant's reaction is just perfect. Like he can't. He just. He has the most perfect comic reactions to things all the time. Anyway. um... So, anyway, he kills... Joel kills him. Um, and as they're doing this, Anne is 
who's their new next door neighbor, who's a cop, is completely convinced that all these people have gone missing because Sheila's eating Nazis. That she finds a Nazi softball team, and it's like this is fantastic. Whenever I get hungry, I just go to my lobster tank. Right, that's a lobster tank. She called. Just pick a lobster and eat it. That's it. So, um. So Anne is trying to connect all these suspicious uh, mis- uh, missing people's cases, um, and she hasn't linked it to Joel, but she's doing these canvas paintings of all the clues, and then inexplicably to her, she paints she paints a picture of Joel's face looking really nervous. And so they're like, okay, this is getting a problem because Anne is starting to piece it together. Um, and so uh, they find out who where these clams are coming from. They go to the clam place. It's this woman. She has no idea what's going on. She's just made a whole bunch of them. They realize that she's about to ship all these clams out nationwide, which will result in basically the zombie apocalypse. So they think about, you know, taking the clams and blowing it up. This is when two other people who seem to be uh, eight, who are part of a sacred order to kill the zombies show up and they blow the place up. And so it, it, there's this whole chaos that the main characters, we as the audience are able to put these things together. The main characters, like they don't understand what's going on for a lot of this. The clam apocalypse gets stopped, but then Anne starts piecing things together and that causes um, Joel and Sheila to think about going on the lamb. And just as basically everything, they seem to have like managed to get convince her that actually the the people Gary, for example, is dead. Uh, sorry, still alive because she thinks Gary's dead. They convince Gary's alive by uh, using the fact that Gary's severed head is still alive to leave a voicemail message for for the dead cop and so on. So they they kind of create an alibi for themselves, but then they accidentally give themselves away. And so it looks like they're about to go on the lam. At which point, uh. Anne finds out that they're undead, that Sheila is undead, that Gary is undead, that they kill bad people. They kind of see we're like you. We just kill bad people, and Anne, um, Anne, it start, it, like this plays into Anne's um, theology, and so Anne it ends basically with Anne thinking that they have been chosen by God to kill bad people, and we just don't know where that's gonna go. Anyway, that's season two butchered, um, <laughs> but yeah. Well, yeah, the point is it's skimming because by this yeah, point... Yeah, I got to skip it. through it, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, there's plenty to talk about. Let's start on the um, idea of long-form comedy. Well, we mentioned this with Maisel, and uh, the problem with long-form comedy is it's very hard to do long-form comedy where you don't just have an episodic show with the same characters over and over again, where you have an actual single plot line that's building and is very funny. Because the problem is, in order to have long-form storytelling, where you take hours, uh, well, I say hours, days, right, to tell the story, um, when you when you have a show that's running for 10, 20, 30, 40 hours, um, the, the issue is that the audience needs to have empathy, right? The amount of empathy a character has is generally dictated by two things. The amount of time they they exist for and um, the genre. So if you take a two-hour film, for example, um, stories about internal conflict will have far more dimensionalized characters than a story about external conflict. So like the average character in... um, in an action, sorry, the average protagonist of an action story is about two dimensions, whereas a dimension, by the way, being a contradiction in the character, right? Mm. Um, they're about two dimensions, whereas a character in an education story or something probably will have something like six dimensions or something like that. So, uh, in a two-hour film, right? It's so dimensions are typically a reflection of internal conflict. And the more dimensions a character has, the more emotional interest they have. The more emotional interest they have. If they're empathetic, the more empathetic they become. And so you get very, very empathetic with characters. And that's needed for long form. Because if you don't have empathetic characters, people won't keep tuning in. They'll just go, I've had enough. Right? And we've all experienced that in television shows where you realize you don't like anyone in the show. 
and you just go, I've had enough. I don't like anyone in this. I don't want to watch it anymore, right? Or the characters become really repetitive and stale. Every scene is just the same thing again and again. The characters don't surprise you anymore, or they start going off the wall to surprise you and start doing really weird, incoherent things just to try and get you to pay attention. Um, so, so you so long form needs sort of emotionally deep characters, as it were, to keep them going. The longer they're going to go on for, the more emotionally deep they are. So, like Tony Soprano is what a dozen dimensions, maybe a bit more. Yeah. Uh, and he shared that with the ensemble, and Heisenberg's even more dimensional than that. So, characters need this. However, comedy actively doesn't want uh, heavy dimensionalized empathetic characters because if you empathize with the character too much they stop it stops being funny what's happening so you need to have some sort of emotional distance so you can just tell long form comedy is sort of fighting against itself right the two genre the two forms as it were are just fighting against themselves and so you ha- how do you solve that well a lot of people do dramedy like Mrs. Maisel is a sort of dramedy, right? Mm. It's 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 more like it's a drama with wit. Maisel, we discussed last week. Maisel um, has what like f- four other genres to fall back on. Yeah, but th- those are a principal genres, <coughs> not drama and yeah, comedy yeah. are on different axes. Um, but like, <coughs> it's it's sort of Maisel is more dramatic with very funny wit as opposed to what actually is happening is really funny. Um, if that makes sense. I, it's, I mean, it's very funny, this show, but I, I, it's, it's what I'm saying is like, how do you make, how do you solve this issue? Well, a lot of the time the way it's solved is they, they put a lot of drama in to help balance it out. So the comedy comes in, it goes out, comes in, goes out, but then the drama does the leg legwork for the show. Right. That's typically how you would do long form comedy. A lot of people do long form comedy. Uh, because that's the, the the natural way to do it. it. Just feels like a nice fix. You make it a drama, have empathetic characters, have all that, but then you have moments of real comedy come in and then come out and come in and come out. You have great wit, etc. Santa Clarita Diet is a comedy. Um, the the biggest belly laugh of season two is the last episode of season two, the last moment of season two. Uh, I didn't do it justice in my synopsis because there's just too much to set up. I, I, I just, I'd be here for like 10 minutes explaining the setup for that joke. Um, and I don't see the virtue in it. But basically, when the reason Anne believes why they've been chosen by God is this wonderful sort of farce of misunderstandings and ridiculous moments that builds to a wonderful thing happening that was set up several episodes earlier, which is, because I'm presuming you've seen it now, the explosion, right? So you remember when the bomb goes off, you just just laugh so hard because you'd forgotten all about it. It comes straight back, it remi- and it comes back at the perfect moment. That plot point, the bomb exploding, has been set up for several episodes, like two, three episodes, right? The Anne's motivations and how she sees things has been set up for weeks i was just uh, it's just occurred to me as you're talking each of the the setups has been given it's uh almost given its own subplot yeah so you the explosion subplot that's yeah. between the two kids you've got um Anne's uh upcoming marriage to the neighbor yeah is this whole right, elisa yeah. is this whole subplot as well so it's going yeah. to happening right in front and, of you yeah the you gary killing gary killing gary yeah. <laughs> gary being a secondary character in season. yeah <laughs> so like this they really set that up and it becomes really it has this great belly laugh so that and it's and the, all the way through the season you're laughing you're constantly laughing at all these things so it's, i said to you before the mike went on every single episode had at least one belly laugh. Yeah, every single at one. At least one. I, and I think a lot of them was were just the way Joel and <laughs> Sheila interact and talk about things. I said this in the last uh, Santa Clarita one, and I'll say it again. I can't watch that show and not see you and Hannah. Like, I just... <laughs> I, ev- as I watch it, I'm just like, that is so... That is, if this were to happen to Luke and Hannah, it, this is how it would go. This is This is it. This is perfect... Hannah would eat people. You would go, we can make it work. 
We can make it work. You'd be doing all that. And we absolutely would make it work. I see that. Because I love her. I would be dead. (laughs) Yeah, you you would be Gary. I'm pretty sure I'd be Gary. Um, (laughs) Like, seeing more of Gary's fame. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't get killed for the same reason as Gary. But, like, yeah, I can see that happening. And you you apologising to me. Sorry, I didn't know you were alive. I can see it. So how do you how do you fix that problem? Uh, well, so uh, you know, you bring in subplots that are funny. That's one way of doing it. But what what Santa Clarita Diet has done is it's just funny all the time. <laughs> Sorry, it it tickled me that that might be the great takeaway for today's lesson. But it's but just funny. How do you do long form comedy? Make it funny. Yeah, it's, it's kind of true. Tune in next week. <laughs> it's kind of true. But what what I mean is is how they manage to keep the distance of empathy. Uh, while at the same time keeping the characters empathetic enough. There are a couple of moments in season two towards the end where they are a little dramatic over a couple of moments. Where they kind of drop the the laughs uh, just for a couple of scenes here and there. Otherwise, it's just funny constantly. And um, the, the, the way that they, they, they kind of do this is the characters are emotionally deep enough to be interesting but then the conflict is focused on a very varied external cast so this is you know this this was the trick of how you would get away with you know sitcom writing is you you know you, the characters go out into the world and they meet different people in different places and that, that's it so what happens with santa Clarita that is like okay for one episode they've got to deal with this colonel guy for another episode or two, they've got to deal with Ramona. So they bring characters in and then take them out, and it keeps the conflict external. And because the conflict stays outside, they don't have to keep reflecting on what's going on inside in the characters to every situation. Importantly as well, each of these characters is brought in by the ongoing plot. The the great clan mystery. Right, the clan mystery, the cure, all those things. These characters keep being brought in uh, and it, so the, the, it, the, these these are sort of they're not really episode they're sort of episodic in one way because the characters involved are completely disconnected but the thread that connects you from one to the other is not it's all built out of what these characters are trying to accomplish and what they're trying to do so well, it's just interesting because by keeping that conflict as external as possible and you see normally what they would do like if you look at parks and recreation or the good place. The reason they stop starting to be funny is the characters start talking a lot more about themselves and their desires and their relationships start to progress and deepen and they become more serious and they become, you know, you've seen it all over and over again, right? And then what happens is a, a wacky character from the outside comes in to make them all a bit wacky. But Santa Clarita Diet, by keeping the focus outside, so it's, it, for example... Is there a moment in Santa Clarita Diet ever where Joel and Sheila are about to break up? Never happens. No. Is there ever a moment in the scene where, um, in the show where, um, like, Abby is going to, like, run away and divorce her parents? No. They have arguments, but that, they know, their relationship, as it were, between themselves doesn't change. They're kind of static. They're just, they're always in love. They're always depending on each other. They're always reliable with each other. They argue, they make stupid mistakes, and so on. Similarly, inside themselves, their guilt, and so on, and their self-delusion, is kind of static. It stays as it is, right? It's really fun. The dimensions the characters have are dynamic and varied enough that they can keep having fun with it, right? But they don't... um, they don't by not dwelling and trying to have the turns happen on those levels they focus more on the external world and so as a result it keeps the show funny because the primary conceit of the show is that they are trying to appear normal right if you take away the outside world this is why this is why they would just do it instinctively if you took away the outside world and focus it stops immediately stops being funny the show Right, and that's why when they were talking about going on the lamb, and it looked like it was something that they might really do, the laughs start to peter away, and I started getting a lot like less interested in the show because once they're hiding from everyone, it's not, 
It's the the central image of the show is the two of them covered in blood standing on their lawn, smiling as if nothing's happening in broad daylight, right? That's the image of the show. That's the whole point of the show. So if you take away the outside world, they have no reason to smile. They've got no reason to smile. There's no reason for them to be lying, keeping up the farce, everything like that. And so the show has this really high pace, just keeps going really high pace, keeps them constantly focused with having to deal with the outside world. Because once they solve that, fundamentally, their, their lives are fine. Like if you took away all that conflict, there's no actual problem. Sheila and Joel are fine, right? Abby's fine. They're all going to be okay. We'll get get deep into this subject in in yeah. in a moment, but um, again, thinking on cast growth. Yeah. If you look, uh, if you put down on paper how many characters know the secret, right? Um, then in season one, it's just the four, I think. Yeah. So it's the two of them. Unless you count like kids. like Loki and uh, <laughs> the poet guy. Oh yes, of course, yeah. Unless you count Loki, if you count the scientists. True. Okay, so there's these exter- uh, external characters that come in, that yeah, but not in that sort of core group. Of, no. Uh, uh, yeah, it's just those four. Yeah. Um, but season two, that grows to Gary. Yes. You have this second. You have this other character, and now season three, clearly we have. It's going to be Anne. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I love, I'm sorry. I love the Adams family analogy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. It's that's where it could be going. Yeah. I, I was saying off mic that you know the the fun of this being like trying to work out where the show is going and like the end of the show could literally be the Adams family. Like they could to- that they could end with them just like waving at the camera on their porch and it's just a house of horrors, right? <laughs> and they just close the door. That could be the end of like that. They've just become the Adams family. Like, they've just, oh, we've settled in. We're okay now. Um, which is kind of the point of the show. But anyway, you wanted to make a point about cast growth. No, that was it. It's just, um, it's the, it's feeling that progression, like, for it to be, yeah. uh, to, to keep long-form comedy going, as you said, you've got that issue with empathy, and so to get around it, you grow the cast. Yeah. But growing the cast like that shifts every season to, to a slightly yeah. different angle and keeps it interesting. Right. Because otherwise... The second you get exhausted, yeah, uh, you exhaust the situation. You have to turn somewhere for the laughs, yeah, and that's where you just get witty lines, right? Or, which aren't bad in and of themselves, no. but as we, as we we've discussed before, it's a different quality of laugh to the belly laugh, like the sure. farce laugh, yeah. like right. the, the climax of season two. And, and the thing is, Anne is is still more external conflict because she's the police, yeah, and she's not. She's not really a friend. She's not family. She's not. It's not really personal, right? Because if you remember, all through season two, they keep acting like they can just drop, dump Anne. They can just dump her. Hmm. She's not. It's not like Rick, his other police friend. Yeah. Right. That he's a friend who he's had to keep out of his life. Anne just feels like an inconvenience that they've kind of tolerated because she's kind of ended up getting married to their next door neighbor. By accident, like it's just this weird thing that they've had to deal with. But it's she's not a friend, and that's why it's so. When when they go to abuse her, it doesn't feel like they're really betraying her. No, the whole um, season I figured they would kill her, but I knew that wouldn't ever sit right because that's what they did with Dan in the yeah, first one. I thought so. they're not going to kill her. I thought they, no, no, they haven't. They haven't built up why it's okay to kill her. They even make a joke about this at one point because like you know. People, people always think they could be. It's always the people you least expect who are just horrible murderers. And Sheila goes, "You're describing us." It did sound familiar. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they're trying to justify why they can kill Anne. You know, because deep down she must be a horrible murderer. That's us. That's us. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, let's let's get on to the climax then. Um... Yeah, but there, but that was I think that's interesting because yeah, you add the cast, you can build this ensemble protagonist because if you have an ensemble protagonist. Um, each character in the protagonist doesn't have to be that dimensionalized, but the group feels very dimensionalized mm. because literally each character, say each character has a dimension, and then each character sort of polarizes with each other character in the in the group. You have this thing where like you can put one character with another character, and there's sort of four ways you can play just that one coupling, and so that it's like each sort of possible combination of characters is like another possible scene. Out of the protagonist, but the protagonist, each character isn't so deep that you start to, it stops being funny, right? So yeah, adding a character piece by piece, that can keep it going. And uh, so that's another little technique to to try and keep it funny. 
uh, by adding new characters. But at some point, you end up with this sort of bloated cast, right? Like, how much is too much? Right. And that's that's only something you can have by feel. It's not really... Yeah. There's no, there's yeah, no yeah. specific number um, or um, anything like that. Let's move on to the, the real meaty question. Yes. Um, the, the climax of the whole show, not just season two. Yeah. This is what you wanted to talk about. Yeah, today. as I was watching it, I thought it was interesting because... Um, it's not something you get to always do. Um, at least it wasn't something you could do until very recently. Because normally what would happen is as you are watching something, like a film or whatever, it would be over within two hours, right? Something like that. Um, and you would you would afterwards be able to go, oh, I see how they set up the climax and I see... And like, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And it moves so quickly and develops so quickly and finishes so quickly. I mean, uh, you know, in a film, after an hour into a film, you know exactly what kind of film you're watching, what genre you're watching, everything that's necessary, who the main characters are, who that, etc. right? Because, you know, there's only like, you've gone past the halfway mark. Um, but with long form writing, um, what's interesting is, it's particularly something like, Santa Clarita Diet, which isn't named after a character, because this wouldn't have applied to when you're doing like long form storytelling, like superheroes, where you know the story. And to be honest, superheroes aren't very long form; they're normally very typically episodic. But when you were reading a a comic book that was lasting, say, uh, a year worth of stories, so twelve issues, typically that story arc, it, you know, is a built around a specific character who's been around for decades, right? So it's like, yeah, you know Batman's Batman and this is an established character with an established world, an established kind of story. And so you know where this is going. It doesn't have the the same effect, which is what, when, as opposed to when you're watching like Santa Clarita Diet and now a lot of long form stories now, like I'm getting the same thing as I'm working my way through Vikings, which is that sense of, I actually don't know what the climax of this show is, right? I, I, I am watching this, and they can develop whole new plot lines and threads as you're watching something. Um, and as you're watching it, you're like, the, the sensation of trying to work out, well, what is, what's the obligatory scene here? What's the, what's the dramatic question? What's the climax of the show look like? The, it's funny. I'm yeah. going to just jump in with an, an example. Yeah. Um, the Walking Dead, mm. we've now stopped watching it. And okay, the problem, well. the problem is now, because we're always like a, two seasons behind, but season six has now gone up on Prime, which is the season mm. that we need to watch next. Um, but the way people are talking about season seven or eight or whatever is on TV at the moment, yeah, um, it sounds like everything's gone to hell, like in a bad way. Oh. And one of the questions we were asking ourselves back in season two or three is... Where is this going? Where is this going? Because you've got an inherent problem with a zombie apocalypse. Mm. Is that you have to... I mean, it's either going to be cured or it's right. not. And neither of those are particularly interesting solutions. Right. And I don't know that... It doesn't sound like, from what I've from what I've heard, the yeah. buzz, as it were, doesn't sound like they know where it's going. So yeah. it's, it's what I was... The point I was making was it's... Um, uh, it can work both ways. That where is this going can be a bad question well, as opposed to... Well, the thing is, uh, normally when you're watching a show, you actually do know where it's going. Just instinctively, you understand yeah. what kind of show it is. Um, and w when I say where it's going, you don't know the specific logistics of everything, but you get a sense of what this story... You see, genres determine what your story is about. You do a combination of genres, it determines... Your, you know, your story is about a certain thing and you're going to use these and these genres end up playing. If it's a combination, then those combinations work together. So um, when you're watching a when you're watching a story unfold in front of you, um, not every story is about everything. You have to, you know, you specify. So as soon as you start doing that, you start writing in genres. And as soon as you start writing in genres, there's a certain sort of pattern to how people expect this to play out and you want to play with their expectations and so on. But what happens with long form, because it can go on for so long and you literally will have 
writing team changes where suddenly you've got a season where no one who was on the original season was even involved, right? Um, and all these kind of things. And you have people, actors dropping out and whatever, right? You have all these... I mean, all the production issues can become really problematic for mm. a show. And at some point, you realise, this isn't the show I was watching and I'm not interested anymore. Either maybe because the entire cast has changed... Or because the theme has changed, like the the sensation of this, what what drove the show is now gone, right? Um, so, for example, if you get rid of characters, people lose empathy and they're not interested in building up empathy anymore. Hmm. This is what happened with the X Files. Uh, Robert Patrick was very good as Agent Doggett, but we've been watching Mulder and Scully for seven years, and we weren't interested in more Monsters of the Week stories that didn't have Mulder and Scully that had just brand new characters. So it wasn't. It was like everyone had to start from scratch again, and it was like, no, no one's really interested. Do you get that problem with Doctor Who? No. Why? Because it's the same character. Okay. It's the same. It's the same person every time. You don't lose. Uh, they don't come in as like I'm a brand new character. It's like you know. So it's the actors just changed. Okay. And it's part of the fun because the new Doctor Who is going to bring something new to the character. So you're looking forward to what's new about them. What's li- what's different about Doctor this time, but it's still the Doctor. But anyway, um, so, uh, where was I? Uh, oh, yeah, so, th- you know, if you get rid of the cast, a character or whatever, people lose empathy, they're not interested. If you change the fundamental premise of the show in some way, so this is what's happening with The Good Place, where it's like, well, what was The Good Place about? And it seems to maybe be about just whether or not uh, Chidi and Eleanor will ever fall in love. I don't remember that being the premise of this. Sh- I don't remember that being the, what was interesting about this show. Mm. Um, and it's, it seems to be going off in that direction. It's like that wasn't. That's not what this show was about. And it's like, yeah, shows can change and so on. It's not that you can't do these things. It's more just like when you do these things, you risk a problem, right? Uh, which is that you could lose your audience. It's like it's like any question. Can I do this? Yes. Yeah. Story. Yes, you can. But why? Exactly. So, uh, so yeah, you you can possibly lose your audience doing this. So, but what's very interesting, I find, uh, watching Clarita Dyer and watching Longform now is as you're watching it, when you see a show basically open with a certain number of questions, then it starts stripping away all the things that really don't matter to the getting really to the heart of what really matters in this show. And then as that starts to happen, the obligatory scene is this term McKee uses in story, which is once you have the inciting incident, the audience has in their head the scene that this story must have before it can end, right? Now, normally that's related to genre, right? Because of... um just how we understand things you know for example you if you're going to have um uh an action story you know that the story can't end until the hero has either defeated the villain or the villain has defeated the hero and so you you know the the core the whole here at the mercy of the villain scene you get Jaw- jaws is the example he uses in the book isn't it yeah you know it can't end until <laughs> like the shark is dead or the sheriff is dead yeah like one of them has when to the body yeah when the body's discovered that's the scene you project. Yeah, exactly. You know, once Poirot finds a dead body, it can't end until Poirot has unmasked the killer. Yeah. It's just, you know, these certain things. So what I find so interesting about watching something like Clarita Diet is this sort of watching as the obligatory scene becomes more and more finalized in your head. Because as I said, as I was saying earlier, films uh, and whatever whenever you would start something it would be over in normally one sitting novels that's not necessarily the case right depending on how big the novel is and how fast you read but typically with films tv whatever you know something starts a couple of hours later it's over and you never have that moment of uh, you, you never get to study your experience of it as fully as you can now as you can kind of as an audience member really pay attention to what you're expecting and why you're expecting things. It's like it slowed down the process to analyze what it's like to be an audience member, which is important because then you know as a writer what your audience is expecting. So in to Diet, for example, there's two things that are happening in the show. One of them is they're going to kill Gary. And as you're watching it, you're like, I don't want Gary to get killed. I really like Gary. 
I want Gary to stay around and be in their house in the Adams family thing at the end, like cousin it. Like that's what I want. I want Gary to stick around. So they're building up to this thing where it's like they're going to kill Gary. I don't want you to kill Gary. I get why you are. I understand it. But come on, can't you get Nathan Fillion to like sign a contract? Can't you keep him? And um, and of course they don't kill Gary. They just don't do it. Um, and uh, and similarly, you don't want them to go on the lam. You don't want them to end up in hiding. You want them. You want to watch them try to keep up the facade of having a normal life. It's their blind obsession. It's what the show is really about. And then of course uh, they don't put them on the lamb they find a great way to have them even keep up that pretense on the inside as well so not only do you have to keep the pretense outside uh where normal family but on the inside they have to now keep up a pretense with Anne that they are chosen by god to do these things so they're hiding it in both areas of their life now which is just terrific okay so um so it's great to just uh so because this is what we want and they've got time to build us up and set up what we want and so you can kind of make sure that the audience is happy to be watching your show, even if you take them in places that are dark and twisted and hard to watch. It's like at least, you know, the audience wants to go along with you. Where do you see the show ending up? What's, what is the obligatory scene? Yeah, it, it, I, I, it, there has to come a point eventually where they absolutely cannot have any sort of normal life or that this situation that they're in is somehow normal. It feels to us that I, it seems like they're not going to ever going to be able to cure Sheila unless they bring in some of the background mythology somehow of what's going on with her. It seems like she can't be cured. And the characters are coming to this sort of conclusion that, yeah, we can't actually cure you. And so that at the beginning, it was like, can we fix her? You can't really fix her, you know? And so how are we going to live with this? And it, and they kind of hit the nail on the head in one scene where, uh, for a brief moment, they kind of see through the facade of what they're doing, and they tell Abby, we don't know if this family is going to make it. And the whole point of the show, what it's building up is, can they keep it together? Can they keep this family together? You know, that's, that's it. So at some point, we're waiting for something to happen, and it almost happened in this season. Right, so basically, this season was very, very close to being the end of the show, as it were. But that's it. We're waiting for that moment where either their lives cannot possibly go back to normal, such as they're in prison, dead, properly dead, whatever, right? Or they have somehow made this go back to normal in some way. They are normal again. Hence the Adams family reference, right? Mm. They've become the Adams family. That's. I mean, that seems right, right? That's some kind of ironic ending. Well, or, or rather, what I mean is, is that kind of ending is where this show is going, right? Sure. It yeah. it, I, it wouldn't be sad. Seems, it seems more likely than a cure. Yeah, it, it doesn't seem like it would be fun or very interesting for them to suddenly be on the lam, and then it'd be about whether or not they get caught. That doesn't sound interesting. Nothing. Nothing the show has done so far has been uninteresting. Yeah, in that way. No. And so I would be very, very surprised if the uh, if the ending of the show was a cop out. Literally with cops, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> the way the way I've been but, feeling about this show is that season one kind of piqued my interest. I yeah. thought this is good. Yeah, but shows have been good for one season before. Right, two is when you know like there's form. Yeah, there's right? some that you hope that you know the the crew on there are going to stick around, which probably means maybe four or five years, and then that's it. Right, like Breaking Bad was sure, yeah. yeah. That's the kind of thing, and that and the, that's that's sort of the you see Breaking Bad. I saw in box sets, so I didn't even have the same. You know, I saw the I didn't see them once a week. I saw a proper box set, and that's mm. it. And uh, it was off like it was so long between season two and three. I think I watched three, four, and five almost back to back. But this, the, it's kind of really nice to slowly watch how you as an audience are changing your expectations of what you are thinking this show will end as and where it's going and so on. It's really fascinating because that, even if you're running a short story, you need to understand that. Mm. You need to understand how your audience expects things, when they expect things, and so on. And in fact, by the way, this is one of the reasons I loved role-playing. 
as a GM. Because I and I just realised just just occurred to me as a GM I used to do that all the time, like when I was uh, doing the role play and I had my players I paid very strict attention to what people were expecting, so I could then play around with it mm. and do something that they weren't expecting and uh, trick them in this way or that way or set this up or I'd pay attention to like if someone was really because often you know players in a role playing game they'll start asking questions about something you haven't planned out for at all so you go okay fine you give them a bit of a brush off but then you pay you remember that they were asking about that and you write that into your story for next week and the week after so you sort of improvise a little bit because you get the characters the players literally tell you what they're expecting to be the case like hey I'm gonna gonna check out that I'm gonna check out that tome uh, okay uh, that'll that'll take you a few days uh, we'll get back to that next week right because uh, now you're going to set up the tome right and you've got to see what you can do with the tome whatever they're interested in and so it's, so as an audience it's very it's very uh, as as writers who are watching these shows it's very interesting to pay attention to how your expectations are changing as the story unfolds I was going to ask the question it's happening so slowly <laughs> I was going to ask the question, do, do, do you ever think that we'll reach a stage of storytelling where somebody can pay attention in that way to audience expectations? And I realise we've already had it with uh, The Last Jedi. What do you mean? Well, paying attention to what the audience is expecting and what they want and then twisting that deliberately. Oh, people do it all the time. All the, great, all the best stuff does that. Over long form? Oh, you mean over long form? Yeah, sorry, yeah Breaking Bad totally did it. You think? Yeah. They set up an expectation. There's the gun in the car. What do you think is going to happen? I don't... No, do you know that, what I mean? That, that, that I, yeah, I, that's not quite the same uh, for me. I well, don't, I, well, what's, what's different? That, that is, that is um, having an understanding of your audience enough to preempt what their expectation will be. I mean, literally responding to oh. to people, which is what, as we discussed, what Ryan Johnson actually did with, in like, last year. Yeah, Jedi. he totally did that. Um, yeah, there's there's lots of things where people who were on the film said what Ryan Johnson was telling them. Like, you know, Mark Hamill goes, "We've got to give them what they want and what they expect," and Ryan Johnson went, "No, we give them what we want in a way they don't expect." Right. <laughs> um, and he's and he's absolutely right. It's why I mean, the more the more I think about the Last Jedi, the better it gets. Um, just what a breath of fresh air that film is to that franchise. Um, but yeah, that's a good point. He because there's so much uh, understood of what people are expecting mm. from the things uh, from the from these films. But you you do get that between seasons of a TV show, you know. Uh, that would be the time to do it. Obviously, you can't yeah. do it in between episodes. No, unless you're South Park. Unless you're South Park. Um, but yeah, you you can't do it in between episodes. But it would be in in between seasons. But that happens. Like they pay attention, uh, and sometimes it's disastrous. This is what happened with Heroes. Uh, Heroes started um, originally. It was going to have a completely rotating cast, so none of the characters carried over. Um, and uh, between season one and season two. Uh, people were so happy with these characters, they decided to keep them on. So they kept the characters on. So they had the same cast, which was a kind of a problem because a lot of these cast members didn't make sense in the new one. And then also um, the writer strike happened and it meant that they had to undo... They were building up for the second season to have this big plague happen. And um, they had to sort of basically go, well, in case we don't get picked up for season three because our ratings have been dropping, um, we're going to have to resolve it. So they resolved it, which undid all the setups because they didn't set up that the plague wouldn't happen. They said that the plague would happen. They had characters who specifically seemed tied to the plague, but never got to interact with it. Um, Like there was a woman who had this sort of weird disease power and... So you think that's going to play pay, pay off and so on. And there were other problems as well. And I always I got really annoyed because I remember what's happening and people complaining that Heroes Season 2 wasn't as good as Season 1. I, was like, I remember Season 1 being boring until about Episode 9. And then Episode 9 came along and it was amazing. But anyway, of Season 2. But anyway, um, so between the gap between the short Season 2 and Season 3, they had such cold feet. They brought back Sila. They brought back all the characters that everyone loved. They got rid of all the characters no one liked. They dumped all the themes everyone uh, uh, didn't like. 
they and the show had a clear sort of idea for what the show was actually like playing out. If you remember, the first season opened with loads of shots of the future. Mm. And the idea being, and the first season was meticulously plotted, you knew that they had the the seasons planned out. They had their seasons planned. They knew what their like three or four years worth was going to look like, and how it was going to build, and what it was going to pay off. They planned it all out. And between season two and three, they literally junked everything. And then halfway through season three, because that was also doing bad, they junked everything they were doing in season three to try and set up something else. And it was just this... Yeah, I remember watching it. It was just like, they are literally reacting constantly to what everyone says. And the DC uh, movies are the same problem as well. Right. Um, And so uh, it's definitely a thing that people do, where they go, oh, the audience wants this, well, let's do it. But the, the mistake is, well, we'll just give you what you want. Uh, or we won't give you what you want. Whatever. It's 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 not it's, it's a dangerous it, game to play. Yeah, it's really dangerous. Um, but what I what I'm thinking more is, as a writer, you're paying attention not to, um, not to define what the right what the show is about. See the, these things that these are fa- This is this is a way that like the 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 producers and fans are cooperating as if like the artist is just a ghostwriter, right? They're just supposed to ghostwrite fan fiction for the fans that they the producers can then sell. That's that's that that's the thinking there, right? So when you have someone like Ryan Johnson come along, when you have an artist who goes, "No, I've got something to say and I'm going to say it." Uh, you want to pay attention to feedback and you want to hear it and understand things, but it's not to define what it is that you're trying to do. It's to help you do it better, right? That's the big difference. So. <clears throat> When I so as I'm watching Santa Clarita, I'm not trying to like define. Oh, this is what this show is about. And from there, it can they divert or whatever. Rather, what I mean is, as a as someone as as a writer watching yourself watch the show and paying attention because you have so much time, you can pay attention to how you are being made to expect certain things by the show as it's playing out. And so, as I'm watching the show and I'm going, oh man, I just realised I don't care about them curing her. I don't really want them to cure her. That's not what's interesting anymore. What's interesting is this. What's interesting is that. And then you realise that's always been there, but it's now much more pronounced and crystallised. And as you pick that up, you start going like, ah. And you know what I mean? And you go, wow, when did that happen? How did they make me change my view of this and that how have they made it that i'm not even expecting her to get cured anymore like that's not what i'm interested in seeing that to me is very very interesting to be able to watch myself do as i'm watching the show because it's totally unconscious and intuitive but then i can step back and go oh this is how i'm thinking so this is how it feels and that's what i'm trying to get when i'm writing my story even if it's only a short story, a full-length story, or a long-form. Do, do you think that's what we learn then from season two of Santa Clarita? That's what I learned, and therefore that's what you all learned. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's like that's what I, I, I found. That's what I learned was very interesting was how they were able to keep the show going, um, and keep me invested. Um, I thought it was very interesting experience. I guess. Okay, is that it? That's it. Well, you answered the question before I got there. So, oh, um, I don't know. It's almost as if you don't need me anymore. I don't really do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Say goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>